Well, before we open the Word of God this morning, I want to uh, make you aware of an event that's, be, that's coming up in a couple of weeks. We have several people at Christ Fellowship who have either inquired about membership or asked about what the membership class is like or when it is. And we're going to do something a little bit different this year. Instead of teaching a membership class, which is really the kind of the final port of entry for someone who's interested in membership, is we're going to have you to our house. So uh, mark the date on February 24th. That's uh, Sunday evening, February 24th at 630. This will be more of an informal time of fellowship and an overview really of what membership looks like at Christ Fellowship. If you're not sure whether or not you want to commit to membership, but you just want uh, to inquire and get to know some other folks, get to know a few of the elders, we'll have some of the elders there as well. I want to invite you to come. Uh, again, it'll be an informal time where you have a chance to meet people, get more familiar with Christ Fellowship, and ask any questions that you might have, and also have some, some great dessert together. So next week, we'll have more of a, a formal sign-up for you. In the meantime, if you know you're ready to roll, uh, you're welcome to call the church office. Come talk to me after the service, and we'll be sure uh, to sign you up. Well, I want to invite you to, once again, turn to... The book of Jude. Two more weeks in the book of Jude, and then we're going to turn our attention to the book of Habakkuk. A recent headline in a Newsweek article just a few weeks ago literally shouted at me. I want to read you what the headline said. One third of Americans don't believe six million Jews were murdered during the Holocaust. You see why I say it shouted at me? The article goes on to say that one third of Americans think that, quote, substantially less than six million Jews were murdered in the Holocaust, according to a new survey that highlights a worrying lack of basic knowledge about World War II in that generation and the, gener- and the genocide that took place in that generation. May I just say very simply that there is a, a simple response to anyone who denies the horrors and the six million plus people that died in the Holocaust. May I give a simple response to anyone who, who minimizes the severity of those days and all that took place during World War II? Um, those people need to wake up and smell the coffee, right? It's time that, that, that we, we wake up and realize the historical facts. The Holocaust denier, simply put, needs to get in touch with reality. Now, sometimes as followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, we too fail to live in reality. Sometimes we find it difficult to to explore what's taking place around us. We see unconfessed sin. We see bitterness. We see unresolved anger. We see divisiveness. We see it in the local church. But some of us would just assume, ignore it. We become like what I like to call the evangelical ostrich. It's just safer There's more security in in planting our head firmly into the ground and ignoring what's taking place around us. In the book of Jude, the author makes it painfully clear 
that he does not want his readers to ignore what's taking place within the local church. His concern about the first century church has really been the focus of of our discussion over the last several weeks. And in a broad swoop, I want to walk you back through the book of Jude just to remind you of where we have come from. In verses 5 to 7, Judah offers three very important reminders. He told the church, Jesus judged the unbelieving. He said that Jesus also judged the rebellious angels and that Jesus judged the sexually immoral. Have you ever heard it said that Jesus never once said anything about sexual sin in the pages of the New Testament? Well, this is a passage that debunks that quickly. Jesus judged the sexually immoral. It's very important that we understand that Jesus will judge every person who fails to repent and turn from their sin and trust in him for eternal salvation. Then in verses 8 to 11, the author spells out what I've referred to as the apostates creed. Not the apostles creed, the apostates creed. There are four things in that creed. Number one, they're driven by emotion. I actually had an experience of someone who was driven by emotion just a few days ago. An old buddy of mine contacted me. This is a a young man who he and I spent uh, time together over the word weekly for over three or four years together. Just a good friend of mine. Well, he contacted me and he said, I had something happen. I just wanted your opinion. I, I value your insight and I value your discernment. I had someone come to me and he said, I had a dream. God gave me a dream. He gave me a vision and he wants you to stop doing some things. My friend said, what do you think about that? I tried to be really, really gracious. I said, go back to your friend and tell him you talk to someone in the word. And the word of God says, if you want a prophecy, love your wife as Christ loves the church. Walk according to the spirit. Put to death the deeds of the flesh according to the spirit. Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Do you get the idea? If you want a prophecy, here's what you need to do. Open up the Bible and don't be led astray by emotion or someone who says, I had a dream that God wants you to change some things in your life. And then they leave you dangling and you have no idea what he's talking about. These false teachers were driven by emotion. That is to say, they were eager to set aside the word of God and let emotional experience dictate their lives. It's more common than you might be willing to admit. There's a second part of the apostates creed that we looked at. We learned that they were dominated by immorality. They were, they were letting the flesh control them. They were sinning so that grace may increase, as it were. These false teachers were also devoted to autonomy. That is, they lived according to their law instead of God's law. And finally, we learned that they were devoid of devotion. You see, these apostates weren't interested in worshiping the living God. They were, they were interested in concocting a God of their own devices and their own wishes. Then in verses 12 to 16, we move from the apostate's creed to the apostate's conduct. And we learn many things. We learn that they were duplicitous. 
They were devoted to self. They were destitute. They were spiritually dead. They were diabolical and they were deluded. And so when we think about these apostates, we look at their creed, we look at their conduct, and ultimately that leads to their final condemnation. And throughout this little letter, we learn about the final condemnation of these false teachers. May I say that the warnings about the apostates was absolutely necessary. And even as I looked over my notes this morning, and as I prayed for you, that you would receive a, an encouraging word from God's word today, the thought struck me, we've been spending a lot of time trying to unpack who the apostates were. And this is the thought that hit me. The warning to the first century church was not only absolutely necessary, the warning to our church is also absolutely necessary. It is critical that these first century believers understood who it was that was in their midst. It was critical that they responded in a way that was completely faithful to Scripture. And so just for, for fun, for a moment, I want you to imagine with me. I want you to imagine that you are a member of that first century church. And I want you to imagine that one day uh, you receive this letter from Jude. I want you to see that the warning here is serious. Are you in the first century with me? You get the letter, you go to the mailbox, right? You get the email, sorry. And you, you read the letter and you see this is a, a serious warning. This is a sober warning. This, this is an urgent warning that comes from the pen of Jude. I have no doubt in my mind that when the first century church received this letter, when they read the letter, they called for a special elders meeting. You see, they must have talked at great length about how to deal with the apostates in their midst. As I studied this passage, the thought just struck me. I've been in meetings like this. I have received letters from people who are under church discipline, who threatened to sue me, who threatened to sue the church, who threatened to sue the elders if a particular sin goes public, not that it wasn't public already. I have been in meetings over the last 26 years where the false teaching of heretics is addressed. I have received personal letters that were designed to intimidate me. I've received letters that were designed to, to cause me to, to abandon my post. I've received some very hurtful letters, and I know you have as well. It is in these moments that the followers of Jesus Christ are tempted to throw in the towel. When you get a letter that accuses you of something that you never did, it just causes you to want to say, I'm out of here. Well, I'm just going to go sell insurance and, and take, the, take another road, take another path. And so that is the situation these false teachers placed the church in. These were dark Days and they begged the first century believers to quit. I want to ask you, have you ever been in a situation in your life, and maybe it's right now, where you just needed some, some time to recalibrate? You just needed some time for, for renovation. Perhaps you have been shackled by fear. Perhaps you have been filled with dread because of your circumstances. And the, the route of giving up just seems the easiest thing to do. 
when Jude warned his fellow Christ followers, I believe he wrote to a group of God-fearing people who simply needed to find their bearings. They must have been rattled to, to hear the news of these apostates. These were people who had, who had flown under the radar. They had snuck into the children's ministry. They had snuck into the youth ministry, if there was such a thing in the first century. They had, they had blended in, and they were, they were trying to annihilate the church with their false teaching. And so these dear Christians must have been physically and emotionally and spiritually drained. What's their greatest need? They need to regain their doctrinal bearings. They need to regain their ministry bearings. They simply put needed to be rejuvenated. They needed to be recalvinated. What did I say? <laughs> recalvinized? That's that too. That wasn't in my notes. They needed to be recalibrated. And so I've titled the, the message this morning, A Rejuvenated Church. We'll see that Jude... He, he transitions here, beginning of verse 17. He, he goes from exhorting these believers, that is, telling them about the false teachers in their midst. He goes from this exhortation to a ministry of encouragement. Why? They were shaken in their boots. And so he tells them in, in, in so many words that in their current situation, they need to be rejuvenated. Would you stand with me as we read these verses together, beginning in verse 17? This is the word of God that says, But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people, devoid of the spirit. But you, beloved, building yourself up, in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life and have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire to others. Show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Let's pray together. Lord, what a journey it has been to to go deep into this little, this little letter, to learn about uh, the events of the first century church and what these dear believers were faced with. And God, I, I think of our context here in Everson. I thank you for each person who has come to worship you. I thank you for each person who's come to, to learn from your word. And I pray that each person would leave uh, filled with encouragement that these words that, that Jude penned, the original audience, that we would realize that these words are also penned to us. This is the eternal, infallible, authoritative word of God. So we trust your spirit to be our teacher. God, I ask that you would uh, hit us where we live today. There are many needs. There are many hurts represented around this sanctuary. And so I pray that you uh, would do a mighty work that perhaps we don't even expect, that you would encourage us and that you would also exhort us through your infallible word. First in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. What does the rejuvenated church look like? What are, what are the components of a rejuvenated church? We have seen the powerful reminder that Jude offered 
this group of Christ followers, beginning in verse 5. If you want to just turn your page, if you need to, and go back to verse 5, I want you to, to remember this particular section. He says, now, I want to remind you. And then he goes on to describe the, the three ways that Jesus executes judgment. We, we looked at that just a moment ago. Jude offers this as an important reminder. But then if you flip back and look at verse 17, he also has a reminder. He says, but you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's very important that we recognize that he addresses them as as what? Beloved. That is to say, he addresses them as a group of people he loves with all of his heart. The word translated beloved means a person who is cherished. These are people who mean a great deal to them. He loves them, and this is precisely why he warned them about the apostates who had, who had secretly uh, infiltrated their church. But... He wants to do more than merely warn them. If you remember back in verse 1, all the way up through verse 16, it's warning, 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 warning. But he wants to move beyond the warning and the exhortation, and he wants to encourage them. And his, his encouragement begins right here in verse 17. He tells them to remember. Now, when you see this word remember, it not only means that you say, ah, I could have had a V8. It's more than that kind of remembering. It's, I remember something, and on the basis of that memory, I choose to respond. You see, it's not merely a passive word. It's an active word. Exactly what, then, does Jude want them to remember? He says again in verse 17, Remember and respond. Remember what was predicted by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, It's important that we wrestle with the identity of an apostle. If if you read Christian books and you read Christian magazines, and most significantly, if you watch Christian television, you will see that there are self-proclaimed apostles running everywhere. Raise your hand if you've ever run into a self-proclaimed apostle or read about one or seen one on TBN. Don't laugh. What's an apostle? What are the marks of an apostle? Well, there are some very specific criteria. So if you're ever at Starbucks and someone sits across from you with a great big cup of coffee and says, I am an apostle, here is the litmus test that you need to offer. Number one, a person who is an apostle needs to be a physical eyewitness of the resurrected Christ. That's not a very good start for the people who claim in our culture to be an apostle. The first criteria is that they need to be a physical eyewitness of the resurrected Christ. Secondly, an apostle needs to be appointed by the Lord. Do you need to hear more? <laughs> There's a third important criteria is they are able to authenticate their apostleship with miraculous signs. That is to say, and I think you've picked up on it, is the apostles are no more. We no longer have an apostle in that sense. And so Jude says, it's very important that you remember what was predicted by the apostles of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Now notice how Jude encourages these dear Christians. First thing is he, he wants them to establish a realistic outlook. A realistic outlook. Now, whenever you face a crisis in your life, and at least this is how, how I face some of the crises that come into my life, I tend to kind of, my wife tells me you need to settle down, right? And she's generally right. Usually your first response to a crisis is to do something irrational. Your first response isn't to think rationally, it's to think irrationally. Your first response tends to be emotional or erratic. Jude tells these first century believers in so many words, you need to maintain a realistic outlook. What do I mean? Well, I like to call this section of scripture this this section of scripture a rocket fuel reminder and i i have labeled it a rocket fuel reminder for a very specific reason this is a powerful and a supercharged reminder he wants these believers to to maintain a realistic outlook by remembering something else about these apostates look with me in verse 17 remember beloved the, the predictions of the apostles of the lord jesus christ They said to you, in the last time, there will be scoffers. The first thing Jude wants them to see is that they are men of derision. They are men of derision. The word that he specifically uses here is scoffer. A scoffer, you see, is a mocker or a deceiver, a a man of derision. And what is the really the job description of such a person? The scoffer downplays doctrine. Doctrine's not that important. Doctrine is something that the Puritans studied. We we live in the postmodern generation. We don't concern ourselves with doctrine in this church, so says the scoffer. The The scoffer downplays doctrine. The scoffer minimizes doctrine. The scoffer mocks doctrinal realities like the inerrancy of Scripture, the authority of Scripture, the substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ, and the return of Christ. Now, it probably won't surprise you to learn that out in our culture, you have people running around who, who embrace this kind of a worldview. That shouldn't surprise us at all. But I'm talking about the scoffer who is in the confines of the local church. The scoffer who says, thumbs down to doctrine, thumbs down to theology, thumbs down to those, those divisive doctrines like substitutionary atonement and the inerrancy of Scripture and the sufficiency of Scripture and the authority of Scripture. Peter the Apostle warned the church to beware of scoffers. Would you turn in your Bible over to Second Peter, and you need to see this for yourself because it's very important. Second Peter chapter three. And he gives a, a very pointed warning here in Second Peter three, beginning of verse one. He says, this is now the second letter I am writing to you, beloved. Notice he refers to them with that same term of endearment. He loves these dear people. In both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of a what? A reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing and following 
their own sinful desires. And so in, in Jude 18 and 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 3, we see that one of the primary characteristics of the scoffer is carnality. Peter says they follow their own sinful desires. Jude says these people follow their own ungodly passions. Now, the word passion, let let me ask you, just kind of step outside the text just for about 10 seconds. How many of you would say, I'm a person of passion? It's okay. You can raise your hand. Three. Great. Start over. Let's try it a different way. How many of you are passionate about cupcakes? How come more hands went up for cupcakes than anything else? That's, That's great. How many of you are passionate about football? Baseball? Cars, not cards, Baptists don't like cards, right? Cars, some of you. Uh, Woodworking, okay? Fishing, hunting. This is really weird. You're all passionate about something, but only three of you raised your hand when I said, are you passionate about something? The word passion here has nothing to do with that last 10 second little illustration, The word passion here means evil cravings, not love for a hobby, not love for a food, not love for you fill in the blank. This kind of a passion that Jude describes is evil cravings. It's self-indulgent behavior that rejects the living God. Now, there's a very interesting word. The word is is sabia. Sabia. Sabia is translated as godly. And I think you all know what happens when you put the alpha in front of a word. What does it do? Let me illustrate. How many of you are theists? You believe in one God who reveals himself in three persons. How many of you are atheists? That means you don't believe in God. The word that Jude uses here isn't sabia. It's a sabia. That is ungodly ungodly passions it's this full-orbed word that says the scoffer is a person who loves sin and hates god this is what jude is helping the first century believers understand these are men of derision but they are also marked out as men in verse 19 who cause divisions That is to say, they are men of division. They cause factions in the local church. The Greek word means to cause a group to splinter. It means to cause a group to go to separate sides of the room. How does Satan then use these false teachers to divide a church? This might surprise you. One word, subtlety. Subtlety. Let me illustrate. When a church gossips, a division occurs. When a splinter group forms, a division occurs. When these groups fail to submit to the God-appointed leaders that God has placed in a local church, a division is brewing. When a division erupts among the people of God, Satan's primary objective is accomplished. If you have ever been in a church where there is a problem with divisiveness or division, you know it is one of the most painful things that you can ever, ever encounter. Common themes among divisive people are selfishness, individualism, and pride. 
There's a reason I believe that the devil and apostates love division. Because when people in the church are divided, effectiveness fades. When people are divided, ministry morale fades. When people are divided, the flesh becomes energized. When people are divided, the gospel becomes tarnished in the community. When people are divided, the Holy Spirit is quenched and grieved. When people are divided, God is not glorified. God loves unity. God hates division. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1.10, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. At the end of Romans in chapter 16, Paul says in verse 17, I appeal to you, brothers, watch out to those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. And then he says something very interesting. Avoid them. He says there's a divisive person in the midst, in your midst. Avoid them. I remember hearing about a pastor in Seattle. A woman came up to him and said, Pastor, I get the feeling like you're avoiding me. You know, the typical pastoral answer is, oh, no, no, Martha, I love you. Right? She said, Pastor, get the idea. You're avoiding me. He said, I am. What? He said, you are a divisive woman. The scripture tells me to avoid you. There's a third thing that marks this kind of false teacher, this apostate. The Bible calls them men of the world. Men of the world. The Greek word means natural. And that doesn't sound too bad. On face value, but this word is a diabolical word. First Corinthians chapter two, verse 14 uses the same word. The natural person that is the unconverted person does not accept the things of the spirit of God for their folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. James three fifteen says this is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly or unspiritual comma demonic these are serious things the worldly man is in league with the devil the worldly man repudiates god the worldly man repudiates god and the worldly man scripture says did not does not accept the things of the spirit of god paul describes this man in romans 8 7 and 8 let me just read that for you here he is is very careful to unpack The mark of a worldly man. Here's what he says. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So it should come as no surprise when Jude reminds us of a fourth quality of the apostate. Namely, if you will look with me. At the end of verse 19, he says, this person is devoid of the spirit. Now, we learned about the consequences of such a person in 1 Corinthians 2.14. If you don't have the spirit, you don't understand the word of God. If you don't have the spirit, you don't submit to the things of God. You can't obey God. This is a person who can not only understand this, can't understand the things of the spirit. He actually repudiates the things of the spirit because he is devoid of the spirit. And so here's what Jude does in a nutshell. He, 
He reminds these Christians in the first century about the prophecy of the the apostles, the genuine apostles, namely that they would be men of derision and division. They would be worldly. They would be devoid of the spirit. And here's the point. I believe it's the point he wanted to make in the first century. And I believe it's the point he wants to make to you and I now is we should not be surprised when we come face to face with these false teachers. And I remember I typed those words in my computer and I thought we should not be surprised when we come face to face with false teachers. But you know what? Personal confession. I'm always surprised. Are you surprised? Especially if it's someone in your midst, especially if it's someone that you have grown to to trust and to love. And then you find out all of a sudden this person's had this person has had an agenda This person is a false teacher. And so Jude wants to remind these believers and remind us, don't be surprised when it happens. And so my dear brothers and sisters, may we take Jude's message to heart this morning. Why? We live in an age of rampant and aggressive apostasy. When you come face to face with a person person that matches the description in verses 17, 18, and 19, don't be surprised have a realistic outlook. But Jude doesn't end with the realistic outlook. He wants to move on to some encouragement. And I can almost hear this collective, I'm ready for some encouragement. We've been looking at apostasy for the last three weeks. We move from this, this outlook that is realistic to an outlook that is robust. Robust. What does it mean to be a person with a robust outlook? That means you have a vigorous outlook. You have a strong outlook. You have a tough outlook. You're going to stand strong during these days of apostasy. Verses 20 and 21 give us four crucial aspects for the first century believers and each of us who are Christians seated here today. Notice them with me. In verse 20. Of course, you know, when the word but is used, that's a, a transition. That's an important word. It's a, it's a pivotal word. He says, but you beloved. Again, he tells them, I love you so much. Here's the first of four critical aspects of the robust outlook of the follower of Jesus. The first one is an encouraged faith. An encouraged faith. Notice what he says. Building yourself up in your most Holy faith. Go back with me at the very beginning of the the little book to verse 4, or rather verse 3. Once again, beloved, I love you. Although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you, warning you to contend for the faith that was once delivered To all the saints. Here he says, build yourselves up in your most holy faith. That word build comes from a word that means to to construct or to bring to completion. The same word occurs in Colossians chapter 2 where Paul says, Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him. That is Christ And established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. Now, there's a lot we could say about being built up, encouraged in the faith. Let me give you two very basic and important points to help you in the Christian life. 
There are two things that we need to do if we need to be built up in the faith. Number one is we need to spend time in the word of God. And it's the, it's the most simple and basic, yet the most profound thing I could say this morning. If you want to grow in the faith, if you want to be built up in the faith, it means every day you wake up and you open the word of God. I should tell you that there is a common thread for the last 30 years, literally, I have asked people who either walked away from the church or, or abandoned historic Christianity or were backslidden and came back. What is it? What is the, what is the thing that caused you to depart? And 100% of the time, I've had so many people tell me, Pastor, I stopped reading the word. I got out of the word. I got out of the habit. And so Jude is, is calling us to be built up in the Christian faith, to have an encouraged faith. The greatest way we can do that is to spend time in the word of God. There's a second thing that we need to do if we are to see this building project completed, and that is commune with the saints. To commune with the saints. What does that mean? Very simple. It means come to church. It means come to church. One of the things I tell college students when they go off to college, it doesn't matter if they got a, a perfect score on the SAT or a not so perfect score on the SAT. It doesn't matter what their IQ is. I say, here's the key to success in college. Go to class. All the kids are like, rats, why did you have to say that? Right? You, you, you look at the history of it. You go to class every day. Don't skip. You go every day. I can tell you that my final year of college, I had some general ed to make up at South Puget Sound Community College in Olympia. And I started to get a little lazy. And I started going to the student room to play pool and skipped a few classes. And guess what? You know what that is? What's that letter? I'll give you a hint. It's not A. <laughs> you know what that is, right? I wish I could make a B, but that's literally impossible with my body. Yeah, you get a C when you choose to play pool and not go to class. The same holds true in the Christian life. Ah, I'm just going to take off. I don't need to go to church. If we all committed, we're going to come to church every week, every week, every week, every week, except for vacation and getting sick, right? That's one way, an important way to build ourselves up in the Christian faith, faithful church attendance, because... Not only do I need you, someone say what I'm thinking. That's right. I need you and you need me. We need one another. We need one another. Like iron sharpens iron. We need one another. That helps us to grow in the Christian faith. There's a second component here that will help us with our robust outlook. It's not only an encouraged faith, but it is a prayerful posture. Verse 20, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit. That word praying is a word that means to petition God to do something. Simply put, it means to ask God to do something. Paul says in Ephesians six eighteen to pray at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. First Thessalonians five seventeen. we are to pray without ceasing and so here we have paul or jude says to these believers your your faith needs to be encouraged you need to be a praying people notice something very interesting 
that while the apostates are devoid of the Spirit, do you remember that? They're devoid of the Spirit. The people of God not only pray in the Spirit, they are indwelt with the Spirit. Isn't that something? If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you are called to pray in the Spirit. You are also indwelt with the Spirit. There's a third mark. The third mark continues in verse 21. Jude says, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. I like to refer to this as having an eager spirit. Keep yourself in the love of God. It's going to sound really strange, but this is one of my favorite words in the New Testament. Keep. Like, what about justification or like a big word like that? That's another one of my favorite words. But this word keep means to keep in a certain state. It means to keep in a certain position, to keep in a certain activity. In this case, Jude says we are to keep ourselves in the love of God. We grow in our love for God as we read his word, as we hear his word proclaimed, as we obey it, as we delight in it, as we do what pleases him. That's how we keep ourselves in the love of God. Here's what Jesus says in John 15. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Think about that. We all know that the Father loves Jesus. He has loved Jesus from all eternity. Jesus has loved the Father from all eternity. And he says here, as the Father has loved me. How much does the Father love Jesus? It's this mighty, majestic, unending White, hot, passionate, massive, big-minded love. That's how much he loves Jesus. As the Father has loved me, Jesus says, so I have loved you. That is to say, the same way that the Father demonstrates his love to the Son, the Son demonstrates his love to you. And then he says, abide in my love. If you keep my commandments... You will abide in my love just as I have kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. You say, what does it mean? It means this. One commentator says to love God is to love what he loves and hate what he hates. We please him by doing the things that he commands. It is the dedicated, separated Christian who enjoys the deepest fellowship with the father in the family. But then he adds this additional point. Jude says that we wait expectantly. That is, we wait patiently for the arrival of something. Children wait for the arrival of Christmas. Tomorrow, I've got an electric guitar coming to my front door. Guess what? I'm waiting. I can't wait. Yeah, that that speaks to you. I didn't know you guys liked electric guitars so much. I'm so excited. But we're to multiply that excitement when Jude says to wait expectantly for what? Waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. I I can't think of anything that will renovate and renew our perspective more than to contemplate the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. See, the return of Jesus offers hope. You know what's interesting? 
whenever a pastor like walks away from his notes, it's always dangerous. But here's what's interesting. When I make a comment about isn't there great hope in the return of Christ, usually most of the amens come from the oldest people. Have you noticed that? Usually the younger people are like, yeah, yeah, I got a lot of things going on. I've got your... But the older people are like, amen, bring it on. Come back, Jesus, right? Why is that? Because these are mature saints. They're ready. They're waiting. Edith, I so appreciate you. Every time I, I, I refer to the return of Christ or the new earth, Edith, just like her face just goes, right? She's ready. Are you ready for the return of Christ? The return of Christ encourages our spirits. It puts everything in perspective. And while the apostates await eternal judgment, the people of God await eternal rewards and life forever on the new earth. There's a final thing, a final mark of the robust outlook. And Jude says it like this in verse 22. And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. We are called to have empathetic hearts. A robust faith impacts the lives of other people. And Jude shows the people of God. He shows you and I how to reach out to three very specific and different kinds of people. First, there are the people who doubt. And I believe these are people who may be professing believers, but who may be under the sway of false teachers. And I have to be really honest with you. When I meet someone who's under the sway of a false teacher, I I do not do what Jude tells us to do. He says, have mercy, have mercy on those who doubt. This is an area of weakness that I need to grow in. That if someone has been influenced by a false teacher, I need to come alongside. I need to put my arm around that person. I need to encourage that person with the truth of the word of God. To have mercy means to show compassion on someone. We are called to be patient with people who struggle. We are called to, to build bridges, as it were, to these people. Then there are the people who have departed. These appear to be people who have left the fellowship, who have been ensnared by the apostates. Jude says, have mercy on those people. And then there are people who have been ultimately deceived. Obviously, those who have departed from the local church, they have left the church, they have abandoned the historic Christian faith, they have been deceived. But Jude is concerned that the Christians who pursue them that they do it with a high degree of caution. This is an area of scripture that I have read, I don't know how many times over the years, and it always kind of trips me up. Does it trip you up? It's, it seems very strange. But I think what's happening here is, is he's warning believers, be careful if you pursue someone who has been ensnared by an apostate or a false teacher. There should be a high degree of caution. Usually when I run to the end of of my theological rope and I look at a text and I just say, I don't have time to read a 40-page commentary on this verse, right? It's kind of the dilemma of the pastor. So you know what I do? I go to Warren Wiersbe. And if you've never read Warren Wiersbe, I I would highly encourage you to to pick up a, a Warren Wiersbe commentary. Here's what Warren Wiersbe says. He says, when an unstable believer has been captured by false doctrine, 
We must be very careful as we try to help him. For Satan can use him or her to defile us. In trying to save him, we may be stained or burned ourselves. The principle, Warren Wiersbe says, that Jude was trying to lay down was that stronger believers must never think they're beyond satanic influence. You see, not every Christian is equipped to deal with false teachers who have influenced and captured other believers. It takes a a good knowledge of the word. It takes experience. It takes a faithful walk with God. It takes an understanding of the devices of Satan and certainly the fullness of the spirit. Wearsby continues, it also demands spiritual discernment. It is much easier, he says, to instruct new Christians to keep them away from the false teachers than it is to snatch them out of the fire. I find that helpful. This morning, I want to encourage you, as Jude encouraged his friends, to to live in reality, to not be tempted to to plant your head like a, a theological ostrich. May we stand together at Christ Fellowship as a rejuvenated church. And I must say, I feel like Christ Fellowship is becoming more and more like a rejuvenated church, one that has a realistic outlook and one that has a robust outlook. And so let us remember, the apostates will come from time to time. But as we stand aware and cognizant of what is bound to come, we need to stand together with a faith that is encouraged in a posture of prayer with eager spirits and also empathetic hearts. May each of us have a robust outlook. And may we as a rejuvenated church move boldly and confidently, not only here on campus, but that we would move boldly and confidently in the marketplace of ideas as we engage with people in the world. And may we walk by faith and not by sight. May we walk in the power of the Spirit as we wait. As Ken said earlier, it will happen when the kingdom comes In all its fullness, is anyone ready for it? I can't wait. Let's pray together. Lord, we're so thankful for the encouragement that we've received from your word this morning. May we be a people with a robust outlook, also with a realistic outlook. May we really have our heads on straight as we read the word of God. May we be ready for what comes. And I pray that when, when the dark days come, that we will be prepared that we will be equipped, that we will be standing in courage because we're a people of your word. God, at a very basic level, my prayer this morning is that those of us Christ Fellowship would be students of your word. May we, may we meditate on it. May we read it. May we study it. God, may we memorize it. I can say personally how hard it is now as opposed to memorizing 30 or 35 years ago. So I pray for children while their minds are sharper, that they would uh, memorize your word, that they would hide your word in their hearts, and that it would be a, a source of unbelievable spiritual strength in the coming days. So, Lord, thank you for the way that you're moving in our church family. We thank you so much that we can say that we're moving in the direction of being a renovated church, all for the glory of God. In Jesus' name, amen.